to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Broback. And this week we are covering a short story. This is our first and titular short story within the Listerdale Mystery Collection, and that is the UK collection. For those American readers among us, you may know this story within the Golden Ball and Other Stories collection. Catherine Brobeck, can you tell us a little bit about the publication history of this one? Well, yes, it was published in the Grand Magazine in December 1925, and then it's, well, the titular story of the Listerdale mystery, which was published in 1934 in the UK. Also at the same time as the Parker Pine collection of short stories, which is interesting. Not in the Collins Crime Club, right? Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, those two collections not appearing within the crime club. And then really a little bit strangely, it was not published in any kind of collection form in the U.S. until 1971. So, Poor Americans yeah, were deprived little, of these stories for decades. A little, well, I suppose, I suppose you could travel to England and pick up a copy. Not as easy as these days when you just have to you know, type in amazon.co.uk. <laughs> That's definitely true. Or download it on your Kindle. All right. Let's talk about our victim here. First off, is there one? Well, no, uh, but for the sake of argument, uh, there is a good deal of suspicion throughout the entire story over the fate of Lord Listerdale, the uh, mm. mysterious and missing uh, gentleman who owns many a posh property throughout England. He's maybe in East Africa. That's what's been reported. But he also could possibly be murdered since basically what happened is he headed out on route to his fancy London gentleman's club one fateful night and was never seen again. Maybe he's living it up with Dr. Livingston now or something in the wilds of Possibly. Africa, or maybe he never got there. We don't know. But yeah, okay. I think that's fair. That is the overarching mystery to the extent that there is a mystery within this story. Well, there's another mystery involving real estate. True. That is true. Which we've seen before, by the way. Shout out to The Adventure of the Cheap Flat. Right. In Poirot Investigates. Which also was a mystery that had to do with enviable real estate and (laughs) something being too good to be true. That is also a mystery, but we will get to that in a moment. So let's talk about our suspects here. Lord Listerdale himself is, of course, suspect number one, since it's possible that he perhaps disappeared on purpose. Maybe he was the one that made himself disappear, either to East Africa or somewhere else. We don't know. Right. I mean, I suppose he could have also walked into the Thames. I mean, we have no clue. Absolutely. No clue. And we do mean that literally. No clue. Yes. None none is given. There are no clues in this story. <laughs> yeah, spoiler spoiler alert. And then we have Quentin the butler and long-term faithful servant to Lord Listerdale. He's now basically just running the household at um 7 Cheviot Place, which is the house in I, I guess in once in Westminster that uh, Lord Listerdale disappeared from. And I don't know about you, Catherine, but we will certainly be talking a lot more about Quentin from the get-go. He reminded me of the butler character in Kazuo Ishiguro's lovely and wonderful remains of the day, as, of course, brought to the screen by Sir Anthony Hopkins. A man cannot call himself well-contented until he has done all he can 
be of service to his employer. I'll just throw that out there. Well, I don't mean to be dismissive of Sir Anthony Hopkins' looks, but I kind of saw Quentin as slightly more dashing. A little more dashing. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. Fair enough. Fair enough. But in his uprightness and respectability. Quiet dignity. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was getting uh, a Remains well, of the Day vibe for sure. Y- you were not the only one getting vibes from Quentin. <laughs> this is true. We'll, we'll get there. Final suspect, so to speak, is Colonel Carfax. Say that three times fast. <laughs> that is Lord Listerdale's cousin. <laughs> also, you can, get the- some, you can get some auto listings from him. Searching for a great used car? Start your search at Carfax.com. He's Lord Listerdale's cousin and the overseer of his properties and estate while Lord Listerdale is off in Africa or wherever he may be. So, yeah, perhaps he knows something about where our dear Lord has disappeared to. Let's talk about the world as it appears to be, Catherine. Well, Mrs. St. Vincent, we're introduced to her as this incredibly fretful middle-aged lady who is very dignified, except now she lives in poverty, having come from quite a bit of means, we're sort of told. And Mm -hmm. so she lives in like a London flat that, you know, is meant to be keeping up appearances, but is pretty shabby if you look at it. Basically, it's the kind of place where you would live if you didn't want to be very embarrassed, but you had no money and had lost your family fortune, which is exactly what happened because Mrs. St. Vincent's husband speculated all of their money away and then he died. And so they lost their ancestral home and all their money. So she lives in this cramped flat with her daughter, Barbara, and her son, Rupert. And then to make it kind of especially annoying, all of the money that they have is going to Rupert as obviously the man in the family to essentially establish him in his adult ventures. And so Barbara really has this short end of the stick in this because she's pretty and well-bred and was taken on this very glamorous trip by a cousin to Egypt. And there she um, met an incredibly nice and also rich man, um, Jim Masterson. And he's coming home soon to London. But now now Barbara lives basically in poverty. Her mom is panicked at every single cent that they're spending and afraid that they're going to get kicked out. So, you know, it's kind of of terrible that... They think that Jim won't be interested in Barbara if she's a poor. <laughs> Apparently, I'm going to be trotting out a lot of highfalutin literary references here because I've got two more. Okay. First, Rupert really reminds me, as a burgeoning businessman of the husband character, I believe his name is Frank, in Richard Yates's Revolutionary Road, in sure. that Rupert is clearly not necessarily all that good at his job. He's not remarkable. Let's, no, let's no. put he's, it that way. He's not. And then did Barbara remind you of Lily from House of Birth? Is that where you're going? <laughs> yes. This is, she doesn't remind me of Lily, but I'd say that overall, the plight of this family and of, of Mrs. St. Vincent and her daughter Barbara, especially in that Rupert can at least make a living for himself, is very Edith Wartonian because it is genteel poverty, which is still poverty and is still struggling and still may fall into utter ruin if they don't play their cards right. And that's what's so fascinating and uh, honestly suspenseful about some of those Edith Wharton novels is that this could really go in any, you know, in either direction. Oh, this, they, could, they could end you, up uh, making it or not. 
and it certainly does not go well. Yeah, I was gonna say, thankfully, Barbara does not have to quite fear the plight of Lily Part. But that it's what's so shocking about. I reread The House of Mirth recently, and it's she really. I mean, she just goes there, and she goes so deep and so dark with it, and it's surprising based on where you begin with Lily Bart, but utterly convincing, surprising and convincing and devastating. It was one of my favorite books in high school because it was just like, I suppose like other, other high school kids have like a goth phase and that's about as mm-hmm. close. That's House of Mirth is about as close to a goth phase as I got. It makes sense. I get that. I, I totally get that. It, it scratches the same itch kind mm-hmm. of. Yeah. Yeah. It's like really performatively angsty, but good. <laughs> anyway, in this sort of desperate situation of genteel poverty here, finding herself trapped in an Edith Wharton novel, Mrs. St. Vincent sees a mysterious ad. So bye-bye, Edith Wharton novel. Hello, Agatha Christie short story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the mysterious ad is for a house to let. And she figures it all seems too good to be true from the get-go. Again, this is the this is the real estate mystery here. Um, but she's because desperate. it sounds but she's desperate because it sounds really nice and it seems really cheap. And she figures either it's not actually as cheap as advertised or it's a dump. Or somebody was murdered and there are like blood stains up the walls if she, the Overlook Hotel. If she weren't so desperate, she probably wouldn't even investigate. But she is desperate. So she heads over to the estate agent. She gets an order to view the property. The last time we had that sequence of events, I believe we were in the man in the brown suit. And then uh, we right. saw someone get murdered in Mill House gotta reference the man in the brown suit every couple of episodes guys we have filled our quota (laughs) chunk that was our time card getting punched and this is what the what the ad says to gentle people only small house in westminster exquisitely furnished offered to those who would really care for it rent purely nominal no agents and she believes that the purely nominal is where this is likely to fall apart because purely nominal can mean rather expensive depending on the circles within which one exists But she goes, and the address leads her to a shabby house agent who tells her that the rent would only be two or three guineas a week. And that's suspicious because that is rather reasonable, although she still is worried about the servants that she would have to employ on top of that rent. So again, she's not super excited, but she goes to the house and she falls in love. As many a person does in a thriller, there is some man or woman on house love that goes on here. And in the eerie servant, to never forget that. I look I look at <laughs> I look at you, Manderly. Totally. This is we've got a Manderly Mrs. Danvers situation here a little bit, but with a romantic twist, perhaps, in that mm. <laughs> uh, you know, this butler Quentin is just so charming and lovely and solicitous from the get-go, and he shows Mrs. St. Vincent around the house and its yard. And, you know, she thinks to herself that she really would care for it. She she really is the perfect person for it. But again, all these suspicious circumstances and the cost of servants and the cost of food, it's just not going to work for her. So she she leaves rather dejected. And it's so upsetting because uh, as a lover of architecture myself, I read her line of like her like almost in tears thinking, but I would really care for it. As something Catherine, of like, Catherine really identified with this story, listeners. I really if you, did. If you haven't I really noticed, did. She got she she legitimately got emotional. I did story. because you know what a real estate mystery is. 
<laughs> very near that's a Catherine Brobeck mystery it is for <laughs> sure um anyway so she gives up and she doesn't even contact them back she just goes home and tells the kids about it and too bad oh well <laughs> even more suspiciously than all of the above though is uh mm. sort of the fact that she gets a note the next day it's unclear what information about forwarding to her address she's even given, but she gets this mysterious note from the shabby house agent that makes it very clear um, that they hope that the, she um, didn't misunderstand them, but she did know, right, that, of course, the servants are provided, right. which is weird. Mm-hmm. And it gets weirder. She's talking this over with her daughter and her son, and her son instantly recognizes the address. And the address is the home of the famous, or is he infamous, Lord Listerdale, who has apparently gone missing on route to his club one night and is now maybe in Africa or maybe in the Thames, maybe <laughs> somewhere else. We don't know. No one knows. Well, well Rupert, Rupert has a... A real good idea, though. He is convinced that Lord Listerdale is actually sealed up in the um, wood paneling at Seven Cheviot Place. Yeah, I think Rupert's been diving into the Penny Dreadfuls uh, uh, a bit too much, or you know, perhaps visiting the Nickelodeon a I bit mean, more I, than he should to with the clear, tobacconist's daughter, the, the peroxide, peroxide blonde tobacconist's daughter yeah. that they wish he wouldn't consort with. In a rather snobby way, let's be honest. Very snobby, although really Rupert is a lackluster person. Just not special. Just not special. Just not special. No, but he's also, by the way, it's not even that, you know, maybe Lord Listerdale's buried under the floorboards. Um, Rupert has to repeatedly make it clear that it's the wood panels. You know what? Let's give Rupert some credit. Maybe he was reading some Edgar Allan Poe. (laughs) Maybe. Little little telltale heart, perhaps. Some pit in the pendulum. In any case... For Barbara's sake, Mrs. St. Vincent decides to take the offer because, again, she has this bow coming and she wants Barbara to be surrounded by an environment that's not depressing so that she has a shot at landing this gentleman and having a better life for herself. A mother always sacrifices. So she takes the house and everything continues to seem to be too good to be true because there's also this rather pathetic little sequence here after they take the house where Mrs. St. Vincent worries about the fact that the servants also have to eat. Like, even though she doesn't have to pay the servant's salary, she doesn't have enough to actually feed them. Well, she doesn't have enough to feed them because her point has been that they've been scrimping on food and that it's okay if you deprive yourself of food because you have to, but they can't possibly, like, starve the servants. I mean, it's very bleak. Right, they can starve themselves, but they can't they can't expect the servants to be starved. And Quentin assures her, no, 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 we get food down from Lord Listerdale's country estate, and all of that is also provided for. So they're essentially getting room and board here for a pittance, just very, very little. If you count the food into this, they're probably paying less than they were in the desperate to be keeping up appearances flat. Absolutely. They're spending less money for so much more. And poor Mrs. St. Vincent actually dares to be happy for a bit. I know. And it's really nice. She has a good partner in conversation with Quentin, who also takes a lot of the handling 
of the books off her plate. She doesn't have to like be pulling her hair out every day is basically the point. And also they're in a very pretty house. It is really affecting because she has so many scruples and foibles and you sympathize with them and they're all being met. And it's just so, so unexpected and and lovely. And we now as readers, along with Mrs. St. Vincent, are really waiting for the other. She's not even waiting for the other shoe to drop anymore. But in that she's grown comfortable, we are absolutely waiting for the other shoe to drop. What is happening here? Because something horrible has to be happening. Yeah, something something horrible has to happen here. And let's let's keep in mind, we are reading an Agatha Christie story. And often we do get the rug pulled out from under us and we are reprimanded for being sentimental. But perhaps this is an Agatha Christie story unlike many others. I don't know. We shall see. Shall we talk about the world as it actually is, Catherine? We shall. And as we said up front, there really aren't clues here. I mean, I suppose you could, I think that you can make a pretty astute guess (laughs) very, very early on in this story what's going on. I certainly so, did. You did yeah, as well, Yeah, I certainly right? did immediately. And like, I did not, I had no recollection of this story. Me neither. So it was not like, it was not like I was spoiled. And I mean, I guess what was going on in like the second page, but yeah. that doesn't ruin this. You should nope. just think of it more as a very pleasant ride than um, a puzzle. So, I mean, I guess really the only clue is that post in the paper, which It isn't exactly a clue, but you can make the deduction. What kind of person lets their property for absolutely nothing after running off in the middle of the night? So there is a way to read that. And that's literally the reason given to Mrs. St. Vincent, that Lord Listerdale was really sick of the way that he lived his life in London. Mm -hmm. And he went off to East Africa and he put his cousin in charge of his properties and he wanted people to care for his properties who would value them. Right. And guess what? That is almost actually the solution. It's literally exactly what is said in the story up front, almost. Yeah, and I would actually add, given the number of, again, highfalutin references we've been making within this episode, I'm just going to continue in that vein and say there is a trope of masters dressing up as servants in Shakespeare. I, yes. Classical theatrical works the world over. And perhaps it would make sense to draw on that tradition. It just might. And I I think we can talk about that a little bit more in a second because I think that that's very valid. So, as far as a resolution goes, because Mm -hmm. we really don't have any clues to go off of, I mean, a bunch of. We just kind of have to talk about the end of the story. Correct. Um, So um, the nice young Jim Masterson courts Barbara and they fall madly in love and he proposes to her. Rupert ditches that peroxide blonde girl pretty much. Rupert rises above his mediocrity by virtue of the house. The house kind of. He really does not. He does not deserve that house. No, he doesn't deserve the house. Barbara, Barbara kind of does. Although I honestly think that Barbara is not even all that wonderful. I I think Mrs. No, she's not, but she has a lot of sympathy for her mother, I think. So she gets at least more points than Rupert, who kind of doesn't care that much. That's true. And I think, and we even get the sense that Jim Masterson appreciates how wonderful Mrs. St. Vincent is. uh, Yeah. It's like he 
possibly likes Mrs. St. Vincent more than he likes Barbara. (laughs) Right. Which in itself is also perhaps a tiny clue as to how this story is going to end up in that even Barbara's now fiance is, you know, looking at Mrs. St. Vincent as an object of romantic interest. Perhaps someone else is as well. I mean, the person who is sort of outside of this romance, especially after ditching the peroxide blonde, is Rupert. Um, He does not seem to see all of this, like, ephemeral glow and marriage-making, etc. Instead, he just remains convinced that Lord Listerdale is sealed up in the walls of Seven (laughs) Cheviot. So, Rupert goes to King Cheviot, which is Listerdale's country estate. That's where all of those joints and legs of mutton have been coming from. And that turns out also to have been let to people like them, people in some sort of genteel, impoverished state. And on top of that, as Rupert is going into the village, he sees Quentin go into a cottage, except it's not Quentin. It's just someone who looks very much like Quentin and who tells him, when Rupert finally approaches him, a somewhat suspicious story about Lord Listerdale's disappearance and mm-hmm. how the fake Quentin, this person who's in this the London townhouse, might be someone holding a grudge against Lord Listerdale who may have murdered him. So is Quentin the butler, the murderer of Lord Listerdale all along? Was Rupert right? Is the body being concealed somewhere in the house? Right. And so Rupert rushes back to London to tell his mother, unfortunately for Rupert, one, unfortunately for Mrs. St. Vincent, if Rupert is accurate, his mother basically sees this fake Quentin as one of the best things that has ever happened to her, that he's one of like the best and kindest people she knows. And so she's like, there has to be a logical explanation. Right. Rupert is not content with this. Rupert brings the real Quentin down from the country to the London house for this dramatic confrontation of like, here is the real Quentin. Just as Mrs. St. Vincent is settling down to have a gentle heart to heart with fake Quentin. And so Rupert barges in, he demands the real Quentin tell them who this criminal mastermind really is. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) it's Lord Listerdale. Yep. Yep. The master has been dressing up as the servant and doing things behind the scenes. One of my favorite Shakespeare problem plays, actually, a measure for measure. We've got a little bit of measure Mm -hmm. for measure going on here as just one example among many that we could pull from. And uh, Lord Listerdale had a crisis of conscience about being so rich while he was walking to his club one night. So he turned around and he came up with a plan. With the real Quentin, he agreed with him that he would borrow Quentin's identity. And I suppose he did such a good job assuming the role of a butler that he even came to resemble Quentin physically, if not in face, at least in bearing and manner. Right. And he decided that he was going to help out people who had fallen on hard times. He was essentially going to be the angel that never exists in an Edith Wharton novel, the deus ex machina that's like, you know what, Lily Bart? Here's some cash. (laughs) 
<laughs> here's a house. Here's a, just go. Just go with it. For, here's a car for you. A house for you. Yeah, he's, you get um, a car. You get a car. Like, yeah. I'm like imagining Lord Listerdale is like Oprah, but it's like it's Oprah. But but it's an audience filled with like Edith Wharton heroines and like Dickensian <laughs> moppets who are like dying of oh, consumption. Exactly. Right. I'm like it's just like it's just it's a room. It's Lily Bart and Pip. <laughs> totally. And, uh, totally. <laughs> Like Nancy from Oliver Twist. It's like, you get a trip, you get money, <laughs> you get like expectations, you get, you get expectations without strings. Yeah. It kind of breaks up the momentum of, you know, it being a different thing every time. But I, I feel like someone should do an animated version of that. In any case, that's what's going on here. That's that's the role that he has decided to play in his kindness and his wonderfulness. That is why he had that advertisement put in the newspaper and he's letting the house to the St. Vincent's for so little and not asking for anything in return. But perhaps, like those who don't ask, he actually ends up receiving more than he ever expected. What do you think, Catherine? I think that might be the case because the sad twist is that once this is revealed, once the secret has been spoiled, obviously Mrs. St. Vincent can't live in the house anymore. So right. she realizes that she's now because it's back turned into a charity situation now that the scheme has been revealed. I mean, that's the 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 ruse is the essential part of this because right. none of these people would actually agree to being helped financially in this way. So now it's all ruined by Rupert. Yes, by a stupid Rupert. And so now Mrs. St. Vincent's going to go have to live in like a tiny bedsit by herself. Right. <laughs> Except. Except Lord Listerdale is like, actually, you know, true story. <laughs> I like basically love you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's like, but I'm old. And he's like, but I'm older. And he's like, to me, you're younger than your children. Yeah. Which like si- sideburn Rupert. <laughs> sideburn Rupert and and even Barbara. And we've kind of, again, gotten that sense throughout the story that the best one in this family is the one who's been dealing with all of the struggles and in the thick of it all. And that, of course, is Mrs. St. Vincent. And they get married and they live happily ever after. They do, and we don't know what happens to Rupert, but I don't really wish him that much And you know what? I hope for the tobacconist daughter's sake that he doesn't end up with her. I know. I think she could do better. I think she could do better. But anyway, I mean, this was such a ludicrous ending. It's a ludicrous ending, but it's touching, and it's it's sentimental in a way that a story Mm -hmm. written in 1925 can be and pull it off. Well, and I, I mean, it has, it is romantic, mm-hmm. strongly romantic. We've obviously named a ton of stuff that it has similarities to, but it also has similarities to something like A Little Princess. I was going to reference City Lights. Oh, like sure. Like, it's just, City Lights has such a unrepentantly sentimental ending, and it's ridiculous, but it's lovely. And I defy anyone to watch that movie and not be touched by the ending if you've watched the whole thing. This is a short story, so we're not perhaps quite as invested, although Catherine was. I was. I, I was too. I, I think not <laughs> quite to the same extent. But it, it works, and it absolutely has that feel of Victorian melodrama, which bleeds over into silent movie sentimentality. And I'm not saying that in a critical way. It's in some ways a lost art. I don't think that you can create it now. No one would give it the time of day. It feels of its time in a really charming way. 
Right. I mean, I think that the only version of something like this that you get away with now is something like an orphan movie. I mean, that's why I mentioned like the children element. Most of the oof of um, Francis Hodgson Burnett. (laughs) You can still have traction today with those, but it's because they exist in a fairy tale space. For the most part. Right. Oh, those stories still have traction. I think this story has traction. It's obviously not one of Christie's better read ones, but they have traction. I just, there aren't a lot of people writing them today because well, I, no, I just, you're, you're not going to get away with writing a literary novel that really functions like this, you know? Right. And for Christy, too, just taking this in context of her larger work, we talked a little bit about this on other short stories that we covered that often these stories function as a counterpart to her tightly constructed and rather cynical. Not all of her novels are cynical, but many of them are. And this feels like Christy is absolutely doing something different and something that was probably really fun for her to write. I don't think this took her very long to write, but I don't, I I also don't mean that as a criticism because it feels easy and it feels, it's easy, breezy, beautiful cover short story. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and also it it does have a hint of Papa Poirot's belief that every murder investigation should end up with a romance plot. Absolutely. And what it also does have at the heart of it, which is specific to Agatha Christie and very personal to her, is this love of real estate. And I will just bring up one point here because I think it's interesting and it's a little bit of a deep dive on Christie the person versus Christie the author. But Mrs. St. Vincent at the beginning of the story speaks longingly of Anstey's, Mm -hmm. which is their ancestral home and they have to let it and they can't live there. Even though they technically own it, they, they can't enjoy it. And Agatha Christie was born at an estate called Ashfield in and around Torquay in the South of England. And she had a great love affair with this home. And she really fought tooth and nail to hold on to that home in the wake of first her father's death. I mean, she wasn't the one who was so much doing it. It was her mother. She was only 12 when her father died, but it was actually very difficult. Even before her father died, they had fallen on harder times and they had to let the house and travel. And we've talked about that in the past a bit. But once her father died, it was even harder for the family to hold on to the house. And then even after her mother passed away, Christy was still determined to hold on to the house. I have to say, this story being published in 1925, her mother's death was right around that time. The story predates that and then the struggle that continued for many, many years after that to hold on to this house. And she did eventually sell it, but only after she had married Max Mallowan. And then they bought Greenway, which many still know to this day as Agatha Christie's home. But it was very important to her. And I would be surprised if she wasn't thinking at least a little bit of her own mother in the character of Mrs. St. Vincent, or even if she's not, I certainly thought of her. Sure. And I think that this struggle to hold on to your ancestral home, or or it doesn't even have to be an ancestral home, but just a home that's important to you and that has a lot of memories, you can feel the importance of that impulse and the importance of creating a home for yourself. And this was also right around when Christie's marriage was crumbling and when she was having all of those problems with her first husband And her daughter was growing older and she was doing a lot of serious fretting about 
creating that home and figuring out exactly what that meant. And we can't be mind readers, obviously, and that sort of analysis only goes so far. But I think that it's just important to note that those concerns were central to her as a person. And you can feel the power of that within the story because it is a slight story and it's mainly charming and it's certainly not a <laughs> a mystery puzzle by any means, no. but it's really enjoyable and it's such a different story for Christy. And I'm glad that we covered it because I think it's important to be reminded that she had a lot more breath as a writer than people give her credit for. She, she did do a couple of different things and this is a good example of that. Right. It's a, uh, touchingly romantic story mm-hmm. with a weirdo twist. <laughs> Yeah, with a totally weirdo twist and no silly adventure nonsense that often goes hand in hand with the more romantic Christie. No. So I appreciated that this was a quiet romance. Well, and also this was I, a quietly I, romantic story. I, you don't get that very often. No, from her. and I really like the domestic details in it too. The accounting, figuring out the food situation, and by the way, what is one of our golden Christie rules? Never underestimate the help. Having a little window onto the at least fake help in this story, I thought it was charming. I appreciate that. As that's kind of our big connection point, probably with the larger Christy of never underestimate the help and disguises. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the lady loved her disguises. That's true. <laughs> Well, that brings us to an end of the Listerdale mystery. Join us next time when we will actually be continuing with this curious little collection here with a title that is going to sound pretty familiar to we listeners of the modern era. That would be the girl in the train. Not the girl on the train, but the girl in the train. But you can still prepare your canned G&Ts now. (laughs) Just make sure they're not bulging. (laughs) Or maybe there's nothing more girl on the train than a bulging can of G&T. Seems about right. So that's the third one, since again, we did already cover the second story within this collection. And in the meantime, we would love for you to contact us. You can reach us on email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Or you can tweet at Catherine individually at Brobcat or find us on Facebook at All About Agatha or on Instagram at All About Agatha. And please do rate and review us. We so appreciate when you do that and help other people find the podcast. And we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.